Hello, Gary Payton here, coming to you from our home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. This is a Christmas season like none other, a season with separation, masks, and distancing. But there's one constant that can keep us connected, Caleb's Miracle by Sandy Compton. Sandy's Christmas classic tells a story of sharing and caring, no matter how difficult the times or the winter. So it is this year, a time of sharing, and caring. Enjoy now as my friend Sandy Compton takes us back with Caleb's Miracle, a Christmas adventure in old Montana. I'm Phil Huff from the Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness and welcome to your wild place. As Gary Payton said to begin this episode, Caleb's Miracle is a holiday classic from Sandy Compton. This story takes place in the pioneer days of western Montana. Sandy's characters are shaped in part by the wild landscapes of the West, a place where we must all learn to have compassion for our neighbors. Now let's listen to Sandy as he reads his classic Christmas story, Caleb's Miracle, on this episode of Your Wild Place. Oh, and afterwards, hang around as Sandy and I have a conversation about writing, storytelling, and the lives of his characters. Caleb's Miracle, an 1889 Montana Christmas Adventure, by Sandy Compton. Read by Sandy Compton, as a matter of fact. Amanda Blascom looked at her four men, sitting their mounts in front of the house, one big Blascom, two medium, and one small, all bundled to the eyelashes in sheepskin coats, mufflers, and gray Stetsons of varying vintage. Those hats had all belonged to the big Blascom at one time and another, and she knew for a fact that the newsprint stuffed into the crown of ten-year-old Caleb's weighed more than the hat itself. Well, Caleb said to thirteen-year-old Aaron, who had teased him about the hat stuffing, it keeps my head warm, and it proves my brains ain't all swelled up like yours are. Then he yelled for big brother Joshua to protect him from the insulted Aaron. Joshua, at fourteen, was not anxious to throw himself into mortal combat with a physically bigger Aaron, so he stood judge and found that Caleb did indeed deserve a beating for so cruel a taunt, but gave him a suspended sentence to be carried out when you're old enough to take it. Aaron was looking forward to the day when he could begin administering the pest's pending punishments. They are all so different, Amanda Blascom thought to herself, watching them ride away up the beaver head. Her husband Bill led the party, a single file of diminishing dots that would soon turn the corner round the little swell of land running down from the ruby range east of the river. Then they would be gone, and she would be alone with her warm house and a hundred things to do before Christmas, three days away. She felt good about that. She seldom had a lot of time to herself. Now she had two days. The boys were going to Dillon, and they would stay tonight in that town's big hotel by the railroad tracks. It was thirty miles from the Abbey, as they referred to their A.B. ranch, three square miles of range and ridges at the juncture of the Beaverhead and Ruby Rivers in the months-old state of Montana. It would be a long ride, and a cold one, this week before Christmas in 1889, but a great adventure for them all, Bill included. Something caught Amanda's ear as she turned to go inside, and she strained to listen against the cold stillness. 
It was a familiar sound, but one so faint she had to grasp at memory to identify it. On the downriver breeze, it carried like the sound of a far-off set of bells. It was the sound of her three sons singing, We three kings of Orient are. She looked, and they were gone. Three boys followed their dad up the beaverhead toward Dillon, each with something they had never had before. Caleb had a silver dollar. Josh and Aaron had a quarter-eagle gold piece each. They were speechless and round-eyed when Bill handed out summer's wages. If he hadn't been so set in teaching the value of hard work, Bill would have burst out laughing. Amanda and he had talked long and hard about an appropriate amount for this occasion and what might be done with the money. The two older boys had saved Bill from hiring a summer-run cowboy. What he had paid them was not near the total six months of twenty and found would have cost the ranch. That savings was invested in the ranch and the boys, and they would know of it when they reached their majority. Bill looked over his shoulder at his gosling strung out behind him and grinned, and they grinned back. Caleb rode up next to him. You want to sing some more, Dad? You boys just go at it all you want, Bill answered. I'll just listen if you don't mind. The boys had been singing since they were old enough to talk, and the piano in the living room of the house at the Abbey got a workout once a week. The nearest neighbor, a practical sort of cowman, had called Bill crazy for hauling a piano from the UP freight depot at Melrose, 20 miles northwest of the Abbey. But when the weekly Sunday social rotated to the Blascom place, that same neighbor sat with tears in his eyes as Amanda played the old favorites. Bill listened to the boys sing and looked at the country. He'd not been south of the arm, the ridge Amanda had watched them ride around, since spring. The golden-gray grasses bent to a slight breeze out of the south. The ruby range rose to the east. The small choir behind him sang, Field and fountain, moor and mountain. Ten miles south of the arm, Bill smelled smoke and searched upwind for, with his practiced eye until he found it curling out of a stand of aspen and cottonwood in a small creek valley a mile back from the river. Through the glasses he carried, he saw a house, new logs shining in the weak December sunlight. New neighbors, he thought, as he swung his horse toward the house. Amanda will be pleased. Meeting the new neighbors was more complicated than Bill had expected or would have liked it to be. By the time they were ready to leave, it was mid-afternoon. With twenty miles to ride, it would be well dark before they reached Dillon. Now they sat their horses, looking down at the little family that had come to try their luck on the beaverhead, Jack Thornton, late of Texas, with his walking stick and barely-heeled leg, looked back, nearly defiant, but not ungraciously so. We'll get by, Mr. Blascom. Thank you for your help. But please go to no extra trouble. We'll get by. Thornton's wife, Molly, stood by him, a brave little smile on her face and worry in her eyes. Her hands hung at her side, raw and red and cracked. Bill winced inside. He knew they hurt, but she said nothing of them. Six-year-old Sarah stood silently behind her mother. Her eyes were solemn. Her face was gaunt, and dark half-circles cradled her eyes. Blascom thought of scurvy. Touching his hat, as if in deference to the other man's claim, he led off, his small cavalcade swinging in behind him. Thornton's words, we'll get by, echoed in his mind as they rode away. 
They wouldn't get by, not if one more thing went wrong in a year that had already gone terribly wrong for the Thorntons. At least the house was finished. Jack and Molly had seen to that first thing, before Jack broke his leg in an accident that killed their riding horse as well. That had been in early August. Molly's mule had foundered a few days later, and Molly and Sarah hadn't the brute strength to get the big mule up. It had died as they watched. There was no leaving then, not for any of them, and they managed through summer and fall with a kitchen garden, beef, and fish from the beaverhead. The Blascombs rode a long time in silence as winter threw her night blanket across the rubies. Off in the southwest toward Dillon shone a bright star. It was in the sky before the last light of day was gone and the boys watched in silence as it grew brighter in the sky. At dark, Caleb asked in hushed tones, Is that the Christmas star, Pa? Bill was pulled from his thoughts. The Christmas star was in the east, remember? I think that's Saturn, son. He laughed. We do seem to be following it, though, don't we? That lightened the thoughts of the four riders, and as they trotted along, they sang, Following yonder star. The big Blascom sang, too. When they jogged into Dillon that evening, the bright point of light was setting in the southwest. They had followed it to town, it seemed, and now that they needed its guiding no more, it retired for the night. The boys, especially Caleb, felt it was a mystic night. As they put their horses in stalls at the hotel livery and pulled the heavy canvas bundles off the horses, they remembered the Thorntons and their plight. Even young Caleb knew that winter on the Beaverhead was a serious time to be wanting for things. Bill had assessed those wants on the ride to town and found them serious, but not as serious as he had first thought. For one thing, the Thorntons had beef aplenty, smoked, salted, and dried. Though it ensured their survival, it was a sad thing, for the meat was the remains of the small seed herd Jack Thornton had trailed from Texas. There would be no spring calves. Thornton's dream would be dead by the first green shoots of April. Their hopes rode to town with Bill and the boys, wrapped up in the canvas bundles. Leather and buckskin goods, belts, chaps, gloves, and shirts— skinned from the carcass, tanned, cut, and sewn by the hands of Molly Thornton. These were for staples, flour and salt, ammunition, and blankets. They would bring that at Dillon. Wrapped deep inside the rolls of leather were the efforts of Jack Thornton, 18 hand-carved smoking pipes made from thorn apple, hand-burnished and beautiful. These were for canned peaches, apples, and potatoes, and something pretty for the little girl's Christmas. They'd bring that. Thorntons would get by, but in the spring Thorntons would be gone, beaten not by their spirit, but by the silly hand of chance. That bothered Bill Blascom. The land needed good neighbors on it, and Thorntons would be that. If there was a way to keep their dream alive, they would find it, and Bill wanted to help them. It was Jack Thornton's pride that said no to that, and that did not speak badly of Thornton. It just made the Thornton's chances very slim. Joshua asked what all the boys were wondering. What are we going to do about the Thorntons, Pa? Do our best at trading and take back what we can. Pa, asked Caleb, what if it ain't enough? Bill did not answer, and they hauled the bundles into the hotel. 
Caleb struggled with his load, and a tear streaked his cheek, but he sang softly to himself, Bearing gifts we traverse afar. He turned and waved at the Thorntons as they rode away, and Sarah waved back. They had seemed so small against the rising rubies that he had ridden back to reassure them, and then turned his horse and galloped after his family, embarrassed by his own boldness. Now, in the big hotel on Dillon, he and the other boys made ready for bed, saying evening prayers. Caleb still prayed aloud with Bill or Amanda each night, and this night he was silent for a long time before he began to speak. Lord, he finally said, bless my mom and dad and my brothers. Please tell Aaron to be nicer to me, and I'm sorry I said his brains are swelled. Thank you for getting us here without getting lost, and thank you for your bright star we followed. And Lord, for Christmas, send a miracle for Sarah and her folks. Amen. Caleb was in bed and asleep a long time before Bill got settled enough to drift off. Bill envied Caleb his faith. As he slipped into sleep, he remembered, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. He awoke and asked for a miracle himself, and then fell asleep. A light snow was falling when the Blaskin boys went to breakfast in the hotel dining room. They gawked a little at the finery that had come with the railroad. Though the Union Pacific track had first been laid in Dillon six years before, fad and fashion were slow in finding their way to the far ends of the steel capillaries. Bill made a promise to himself to see that Amanda got to town first thing in the spring. She would love to see these things. Today the trading would be done and the boys would get to spend their money under the watchful eye of their father. Bill had shopping of his own to do, and the purchase of a gift for Amanda was in his mind. He knew what he wanted for her, but he was unsure if he could find such a thing in Dillon. After breakfast, the sight of the canvas bundles in their room dampened the spirits of the three older Blascombs. Only Caleb remained cheerful. "'What are you so happy about?' Aaron sneered. Caleb grinned. "'We get to see a miracle today.' Bill looked at him appraisingly. Caleb hummed, star of wonder, star of night, as they packed up the bundles for the trip to the store. The man behind the counter was a new man, and his motto was cash only. Bill and the boys tried to explain the Thornton's plight, and Mr. Cash only said, I hear there's a trading post over at Nevada City. This is a store. He turned away from Bill's protests. They stood with their bundles on the store's front porch, each lost in his own thoughts watching the snow fall. Why didn't you punch him, Pa? Aaron finally asked. That isn't the answer, son, said Bill, though I must admit it crossed my mind. Mine too, said Caleb, and they all laughed. Where's your miracle, Caleb? taunted Aaron. It's Thornton's miracle, not mine. Caleb turned furiously on Aaron, who was snickering. You quit laughing, Aaron. I asked God to make you nicer to me, so you better be. I think so too, Joshua said quietly. Aaron gave him a quick hot look and Joshua stared back, not giving an inch. Bill cleared his throat and gave the boys a look that said, behave, and now. We'll figure out something, boys. Now pick up those bundles and let's get back to the hotel. They didn't figure it out, though, not that morning. And the cowboys who rode in late in the afternoon wouldn't even stop to look at Molly Thornton's leatherwork. 
We've seen enough leather to last a lifetime, wrapped around cows. We ain't in the market. They swept by, headed for Mr. Cash only store and the saloons. The wind came up at dark, pushing snow out of the north, rising until nobody dared go into the street. In the hotel room, the Blascombs listened to it blow. While Bill thought about sending the boys home down the Beaverhead and riding to Nevada City in the morning, the three youngsters held a conference in the corner. A vote was held, and Joshua approached Bill. Pop, he said, we want to buy as much of Thornton's stuff as this will buy. He held out two quarter eagles and a silver dollar. The other boys looked on seriously. Later, Bill looked out at the storm, thinking warmly of his boys, when something in the sky sent shivers down his spine. In the northeast, dead toward the abbey, a bright star appeared for a long instant, and then was gone. Star of royal beauty bright, he thought. He slept in peace as the wind howled. When Bill Blascom awoke, the creak and groan of the hotel and the howl of the wind told him he'd not be riding to Nevada City to trade Thornton's goods. He would be late getting home, too. It didn't please him, but he and the boys would ride out the storm in Dillon. He looked across the sleeping form of Caleb toward the other bed, where the other boys snored. His mind wandered to the night before, and the kind offer of all they had. He had applauded their nobility and explained the impracticality of getting Thornton's through winter on six dollars. Undaunted, they had challenged Bill to match it. He smiled at the memory and remembered the star. He lay staring at the ceiling in the frosty room for a long time before the boys began to stir, weighing an idea very carefully before he made the decision. When Joshua awoke, he had decided and smiled at his eldest. I guess, he thought to himself, if there's going to be a miracle today, I better get started. He left the boys with orders to stay within the confines of the hotel and went out into the storm. Bill, the man in the other chair said, I know that your mind's made up, so I'll follow your wishes. But what if you can't recoup your money in the spring? I'll get most, if not all of it, back, Judd. What I lose, I'll gain in having Thornton's for neighbors. Judd Hackman had been banker and friend of Lascombe's since they had settled on the Beaverhead 15 years before. He smiled over his coffee at the man who came three miles in a blizzard to ask him to open his bank on Christmas Eve so he could buy things he didn't need for someone who did. Let's go, he said. Bill drew out enough for what he thought Thornton's would need and a horse to pack it on, eclipsing what he had set aside for Christmas. The boys had homemade things at home, and Amanda would understand a Christmas without gifts, God bless her. Reflecting on that, he drew out five more dollars. It would not be enough for the gift he wanted for her, but it would be something, and that was important. He paused at the door of the hotel room and put aside his worries. He wanted to be smiling when he brought the boys their miracle. He stepped inside grinning, but the grin faded as he looked around the room. The boys and the bundles were gone. Joshua's large prince said, Pop, we know we are in trouble, but miracles do not come knocking every day. We will be back soon. It was signed, We Three Kings. This miracle business has gone about far enough, Bill thought, as he descended the stairs. His boys had disobeyed orders and likely gone out into the storm. Neither was a light matter. 
He was not happy when he confronted the hotel clerk. Have you seen my sons? He very nearly growled. Yes, sir, the clerk, who knew an angry man when he saw one, explained very quickly that the Blascom boys had left the building about an hour before with a man the clerk knew to be Mr. Wilkins, a merchant new in town. They had turned right as they left the hotel. It was noon when Bill leaned into the wind and crossed the tracks into the business district. Circling one block and then another, he systematically searched for the shop the desk clerk thought Mr. Wilkins had just opened. He watched the streets and sidewalks for his sons, cursing the wind and blowing snow that sometimes blocked his view. By one o'clock, he had been on every street he could remember, and Bill was beyond angry. He was worried. To find the boys was primary, but even finding the shop would give him relief. That would mean at least that the boys had a destination in the maelstrom of wind and stinging ice. Even in their disobedience, Bill knew their intentions were sterling. He prayed that they had not been led astray by their better natures. He began back toward the hotel, eyes straining to see everywhere at once. He was so intent on finding the boys, he walked by the little shop whose sign read, Wilkins Emporium, Fine Goods From and For the East. As he passed, though, his peripheral vision saw movement and light. He went back and looked in the window. Inside, a tall, thin man held one of Jack Thornton's pipes up to the light. The boys were nowhere in sight, but the canvas bundles were at the man's feet. Bill turned to go inside, and something in the window caught his eye. A silver flute in a blue velvet-lined case glowed in a display of sheet music. Peeking out from under the case were the words, Westward leading, still proceeding. Bill shivered, but not from the cold. The flute was what he had dreamt of for Amanda. Mr. Blascom, I would wager, the tall man said when Bill and a bit of the storm pushed into the shop. Where are the boys, Bill asked. Back at the hotel, as they promised they'd be, the man answered. He put down the pipe and held out his hand. I am Jonathan Wilkins of Baltimore and Dillon. Bill was very nearly surprised at Wilkins' eyes, a startling and vivid blue set in a thin and swarthy face. He shook Wilkins' hand reluctantly and found it warm and firm. Wilkins smiled at Bill's disinclination. You are on unfamiliar ground, he began. Let me put you at ease. Your boys are well and warm and exceptional traders, though Aaron, after making the sale, was ready to take the first offer. Caleb would have had my entire store for these goods and his dollar. Joshua talked to him of value for value before he consented to close the deal. Wilkins' eyes twinkled with good humor as he met Bill's gaze. If Thornton is as prudent a man as Judd Hackman tells me you are, there will be enough to buy a seed herd in the spring. Bill looked perplexed, and Wilkins laughed aloud. I breakfast at the hotel daily. And news in little towns travels like light. Cowboys in my store yesterday told about a man and three boys selling leather goods. Three boys in the dining room aroused my curiosity and supplied the rest of the story. At my urging, they showed me the goods and we haggled in your hotel room. It was merely to transport the goods and receive payment. They left the hotel at all. They were probably back at the hotel within ten minutes of your leaving. What did you pay for Thornton's goods? Enough. As I said, your boys drove a hard bargain. Wilkins' tone told Bill two things. Trust me, 
and trust your sons. He swallowed his questions. Looking around him for the first time, Bill examined the contents of the shop. Cloth bolts, spices, fruits, ointments, beads, lace, thread, candies, nuts, candles, and exotic-looking canned goods lined the little store. Behind him, Wilkins said, Quick transportation makes things possible that weren't before. I trade for rare things from the West with rare things from the East. Like gold and myrrh and frankincense. Wilkins looked pleased. Gifts for the king in my shop. I like that thought. He added gently, We have gifts for queens, too. Bill looked up, surprised. He was more surprised when Wilkins went to the display window and returned with the flute. Wilkins laughed at Bill's expression with delight. He loved Christmas Eve. Amanda was up very early the next day, warming her house, laying out gifts, and finding the makings of a holiday breakfast. She knew when the weather cleared at dark last evening she could expect her men home by dawn. It was still two hours short of that, but it was Christmas, and she lit every lamp and candle in the house, knowing what a welcome sight it would make when they rounded the arm. An hour before Amanda set her house to light, three boys from down the beaverhead snuck quietly to a new cabin a mile back from the river and tied two well-laden pack animals to a cottonwood near the front door. Then, with a great yell of Merry Christmas and Aaron's own special war whoop, they swung to their mounts and thundered away, laughing, thrilled at the sense of magic and the miracle they had wrought. Their father waited below, standing patiently and smiling at their noise and joy. A silver flute rode inside its case and against his chest, tucked safely inside his sheepskin coat. The star they had sighted on at the beginning of their ride home was far into the west now. They had watched it ride across the northern sky, passing by Polaris about midnight, and traveling on toward the Pioneer Range. Bill watched the universe turned slowly on the jeweled bearing of the pole star. It was something he never tired of, and on this Christmas morning with his sons, he felt especially awed and grateful. They rounded the arm together for a rest and stopped and stared. Still a mile away, the house glowed in welcome, while in the sky, a slight line of rose foretold the day. They stood for just a moment, silently wondering what an appropriate way of approach might be. Bill laughed aloud. Boys, he said, what we need are camels. They all laughed at that and rode together toward the house. Inside, Amanda watched the bright star in the west. Thinking of the story of Matthew the Magi and the miracle at Bethlehem, and of her four men, when came a sound on the downriver breeze, like the sound of a far-off set of bells, this morning, she didn't need to grasp at memory to identify it. It was the sound of her three sons, and their father, singing, Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star of royal beauty bright. She put on her overcoat and stepped out to greet them. The three wise men of the beaverhead spent their summer's wages on gold and myrrh and frankincense. Gold was the color of the oranges Caleb bought for Sarah. Jonathan Wilkins said those would take the circles from under her eyes. Aaron, bully Aaron, saw the pain in Molly Thornton's eyes. His gift of myrrh was an ointment for her hands, 
and Joshua, in his watchful, quiet way, had seen the reluctance with which Jack Thornton had given up his last pipe. His frankincense was a gift of fragrant pipe tobacco. Jonathan Wilkins was not the best of businessmen. His shop was closed in the spring of 1890. Both families were saddened by the failure of their benefactor, and they spoke of him from time to time as the years went on. The boys always remembered him, as a group and separately, and though they never spoke of it together, for miracles are often best not spoken of for fear of tarnishing them, none of them ever forgot the day a tall, olive-skinned man with startling blue eyes sat down with them at breakfast on a blizzardy day in Dillon. "'Good morning, Three Kings,' he said. "'In this place I am called Jonathan Wilkins, but in my home in the east.' I am called El Karim, the Wise. This concludes Caleb's Miracle by Sandy Compton, published by Blue Creek Press of Heron, Montana, at bluecreekpress.com. Happy holidays, and I wish you a wonderful new year. Press can make your writing project happen. Um, our publishing services include editing, design, proofing, and publishing of proprietary books and subsidy books. Um, we've been designing books, newsletters, logos, magazines, and newspapers since 1995, believe it or not. Um, we, uh, we, are, we don't charge big city rates. Um, and so if you've got a book inside of you, or you want to read a good book, um, visit bluecrickfress.com and you can learn more. So Sandy, tell us about your inspiration for writing Caleb's Miracle. How did the story come to you? Well, it's been so long that I really don't remember. Uh, I do know that the landscape that the story takes place in um, is one of my favorite places in the world. Um, the Beaverhead River, as it runs uh, out of the Rockies past Dillon and Lima and all that country in there. Um, and I probably, I don't know, Christmas stories have always been um, uh, attractive to me, my own and other people's. And at one time I was, I don't know, this is when I first went to work for, um, for, with Chris Bessler at Kiyoki. Um, I had these three short stories uh, and Caleb's Miracle was one of them. And we put them together in this little pink book. Um, we printed 500 copies and we sold them all. And that story has just been, has just followed me since then. And that was in 1990. That's like, uh, 30 years ago. Um, I like the story. A lot of other people like the story. <laughs> My mother, Joyce Smith, insisted that I turn it into a book, which I finally did. Sally Lockwood illustrated it um, and did a great job. It's a really nice little book. But um, as far as the inspiration goes, that's a really good question. Um, but out of that story, out of that one story and the characters in it, 
um, drew a whole bunch of other stories. And um, if you start with Caleb's miracle and progress through the Blascom family stories, um, you'll uh, you'll learn a lot more about Caleb and Sarah. Um, they actually ended up uh, as a wedded couple with children and uh, grandchildren. So one of the grandchildren's stories is still in the hopper. I haven't finished it yet, and I've been working on it for way too long. But um, that's not a great answer, but that's the answer I have. So where do listeners or readers go to find the rest of the Blascom stories? Um, I have uh, the book The book that is really um, that has all of the Blascom stories up to this point, and I shouldn't say there are there aren't a lot of them published. There are just a lot of them in my mind yet. Uh, but uh, the book that you can find most of it in is uh, Jason's Passage and Other Stories. And it's available at Blue Creek Press. Um, it's also available on Amazon. And if you are like old-fashioned type of shopper, I bet you, you can find a copy of it at Vanderford's in Sandpoint. And maybe, maybe uh, the corner bookstore. Um, he had some for a while. So, Sandy, you're a, a very interactive writer, interactive with your characters. Um, you've talked before about how they come to you. What did you learn from them writing this book? Um, hmm. Well, I learned their story. Um, the, the action of the story comes to me um, kind of in surges, uh, I, I guess one of the things, maybe I should tell you who one of my heroes is and why. Um, Louis L'Amour was uh, a very prolific Western writer. And when I was a kid, I was totally addicted to his stories. He's a great storyteller. Um, he, uh, he, his, and his sense of history and family um, led you from the Fens of England to uh, 1900 California with the, uh, with the, the family that he followed, uh, whose name is escaping me right now, but everybody else that's ever read um, Louis L'Amour will know. But there's a story about him in the, in the late 30s when his books were finally starting to take off and get really popular. He's sitting in his typing room, his writing room, and he's banging away on an old Remington typewriter. His little daughter walks in to the room and he's just banging away on this Remington as hard as he can. And she goes, Daddy, why are you typing so fast? And, and uh, Louis L'Amour looked at his little girl and said, because I want to see what's going to happen next. And that's kind of how I write. Um, I put my characters in situations and see what they do. Um, I try. <clears throat> the very first book um, that I published myself was, uh, was a version of Jason's Passage. And I forced the ending. I, I made it end the way that I wanted it to end. And by doing so, I realized later after I had printed a whole bunch of copies, and which I, a number of them I still have, but um, I realized later by doing so, by forcing it to be what I wished it to be, that I closed off a huge amount of possibilities for later books. Um, and that was a valuable lesson. Um, I just finished a, a, 
a new book. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the name of it is uh, The Dog with His Head on Sideways and 19 Other Sappy Sentimental Stories. And in the introduction, I, I quote Rosalie Sorrells. She said at one time in my presence that the trouble with stories is we never know when they're over. And it's always that it's very true. Um, if you allow your stories to end organically, if you will, rather than saying, okay, this is what I want to say. Um, and this is, you know, this is the point that I want to make. If you allow your characters to lead you into the ending, um, and you should know your characters well enough by the end of a story to let them do that. Uh, the endings are always much more interesting, I think. Um, in Archer McLean and the girl who wouldn't stop running, I tried to get um, the bad guy to do something at the end of the book. And he absolutely refused. He wouldn't do it. He did something else. And the ending was so much better. It was so much better than the one I had, that I had planned that I, I had to use it. And uh, it's a great ending. Although some people don't like it because, um, uh, well, not to give it all away, but justice is not completely served in the end of the book. But you know what? That's how the world works. Justice is sometimes not completely served. So, um, so at the there. end of at the end of Caleb's miracle, what did you learn from the uh, characters? What did they do that surprised you? Um, actually, Caleb's miracle was relatively predictable. <laughs> it had to have happy ending, right? Um, the uh, I think. As I remember, and when I was writing it, um, I, I was trying to figure out how to add a little more drama. And that's when the guy from uh, the, the guy who was the uh, storekeeper, uh, the new storekeeper, Mr. Cash only, um, he was a device. I put him in there so, you know, things didn't work out too quickly and we had to have a little more story there. Um, uh, that, um, and also I learned a lot about Caleb Blascom. He was the little boy who, uh, eventually would grow up and marry Sarah and have children. Uh, I learned a lot about his spirit from that story. Um, and when I pushed him on into, um, Jason's passage, um, his, his spirit, his optimism and his, uh, his assertiveness in the sense of he was, he wasn't afraid to stand up to his, his, his brother. Um, even though his brother was older than, and tougher and, and meaner, he wasn't afraid to do that. And that follows through into the rest of the stories about Caleb and Sarah's, um, Sarah's spirit was not so um, well um, formed in that story, but because they met in that story, when she's six and he's 10, um, that translates into um, the stories in Jason's passage where they have lost their family to influenza and they move, they move from the east side of the mountains over into 
um, the, the wet part of Montana, the green part of Montana, and start over again. Um, so out of that one little story that was 30 years ago, um, a lot of other stories have come. And you, uh, you, you noted that you'd like to know about their grandsons and daughters. Um, I have a book started that maybe I'll finish someday called um, Growing Up Wild. And that's, you're familiar with that title, but the, the book is a story of children who grew up in Western Montana and grew up wild, not in the sense of being um, crazy or self-destructive, although sometimes they were, but in the sense of growing up in a place where your backyard just keeps getting bigger and bigger and what it, the effect it has on your, on your uh, perspective of the world and how you function within it. Um, one of the characters in, in the book, the unfinished book, um, is Caleb's youngest son, Thomas. And uh, a lot of the book concentrates on his um, kind of adjustment to the idea that the world that he grew up in is shrinking and is being overtaken by industry and, and uh, uh, hydroelectric dams and highways. And he doesn't like it very much. Um, uh, and at some point in his life, after being betrayed by a lot of different things, um, this man just packs it all in and <laughs> runs away from home at the age of about 50. And uh, the story starts anyway, when he comes home, but all of these characters grew out of, basically grew out of Caleb's miracle. And um, they, uh, I know them pretty well, although they still surprise me sometimes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Your Wild Place, presented by Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. For more information about the Friends, visit our website, scotchmanpeaks.org. This episode featured holiday greetings from Gary Payton and storyteller Sandy Compton, who shared his Christmas classic, Caleb's Miracle, and then gave us insights into the creative process. This episode was sponsored by Blue Creek Press. It was edited by Henry Jordan. Your Wild Place's original theme music was written and performed by Ben Olson and Katie Archer. If you would like to be featured on Your Wild Place, let us know by emailing us at info at scotchmanpeaks.org. Never miss an episode by subscribing to Your Wild Place wherever you listen to podcasts.